Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself and Canadian editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. And today my guest is Nicole Levitt, a staff attorney with the Legal Office of Women Against Abuse, Philadelphia's leading domestic violence advocate and service provider, and among the largest domestic violence agencies in the United States. As you can imagine, Women Against Abuse is a fairly liberal, progressive, and feminist place. But these days you can never be progressive enough, and Nicole is going to share her story of how the arrival of a diversity consultant following the George Floyd protests in 2020 created a climate of fear in which employees were separated into race-segregated affinity groups and friends and colleagues were encouraged to denounce one another for being inadequately anti-racist. All of this was troubling to Nicole, but what disturbed her the most was the hostile response when she and others tried to push back, even slightly, at ideas that seemed inspired by Black Lives Matter, or BLM, a decentralized movement that, while being widely praised for putting the issue of racial justice on America's agenda, has also been linked to scattered episodes and pronouncements that some believe are anti-Semitic. In my interview with Nicole, she talks about how hard it was to navigate these complex issues in an environment in which everyone, including the diversity consultants, seemed focused on skin color as the be-all and end-all of privilege and victimhood, even though life is a lot more complicated than that. Hi, Nicole. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. Before we started taping, you told me you were in a white affinity group. What's what's it like to be in an affinity group? Is it fun? Like, I mean, affinity is a good thing. Did you have lots of affinity? No, there was no affinity. <laughs> it was a lot of self-flagellation by the participants. And I'd say flagellation of others who aren't anti-racist enough. For people who don't know what an affinity group is, it's kind of like a polite way of organizing people by skin color. Am I getting that right? It's a polite way of segregating. Yes. Right. We've regressed back to segregation. But with better PR. Now, you're Jewish. Mm -hmm. Do Jews get like their own affinity group or do they have to affinity with the Goyim? How does that work? (laughs) We were definitely, we were put in the white affinity group based on skin color. And actually, we were told it was based on um, white supremacy. Like white supremacy would see Jews as white which I had never thought of that before. I always thought white supremacy thought of Jews as other, but that was how it was presented to us. Did you have a a big white supremacy problem at your workplace? Is this like, was like a KKK infestation? (laughs) No, there was no infestation. And it's funny because I couldn't believe in the beginning that we were even doing this. We're a very liberal organization. We are one of the biggest domestic violence organizations in the country. We represent victims of domestic violence. We have a shelter, we have counseling programs, and where I work, the legal center, I'm a custody and support attorney. And so I help domestic violence victims with protection from abuse orders and custody and support. We're in Philadelphia, which is a big city. Most of our clients are, they refer to it as black and brown people. So that was the impetus for the anti-racism training. 
To be fair, and we have this this issue in Canada with regard to Indigenous people, it's actually quite true that a vastly disproportionate number of families that are underprivileged, and often that does correlate in Canada, that could be an Indigenous, and in the United States that could be Black, they do have more interactions with government officials, and sometimes they are at risk of losing their, their children. So so that part isn't isn't incorrect, right? No, that part isn't incorrect. And there's been a lot of problems with DHS, which is the agency that handles foster children and and whether a child needs to be removed from his home. That isn't what we do. But that problem is very big in Philadelphia. One thing that often happens is that the most progressive and most non-racist outlets are often the ones that flagellate the most about their racism yeah. because they have they're full of well-intentioned people who really they're all excited about it being anti-racist so i mean sometimes you have racist institutions in society and they're they're not the ones doing anti-racist training because they're racist and you have very liberal progressive outlets that don't have a lot of racism and ironically they're the ones that go into turmoil over some of these struggle sessions as we call them would you say that before all this happened it was basically a pretty tolerant organization you were working for? Yes, I would definitely say that. They definitely pushed the gender stuff a lot. Right. Um, we cover that on a lot of other podcasts, yes. I guess. I, I don't want to like. Yeah, <laughs> we don't need to go down that road. But, I, but I'd say it was pretty tolerant. After George Floyd was killed, that, in my opinion, is when everything changed. And it's not just me. Like, my story is not unique. This happened across the country. The usual story was that there were a lot of people who, in some cases very suddenly, were like, we need to make our organization anti-racist and called in diversity consultants, often with, with mixed results. But you're saying that it was external factors that led to this happening, as opposed to some big racist incident in your lobby or something like that. No, there were no big racist incidents in my lobby. Now, once we started meeting, people would tell stories of how they had microaggressions committed against them, or they had witnessed a sheriff in the courthouse handcuffing somebody too tightly or, or things like that, that they had witnessed incidents of racism. But none of them were very big, and none of them were anything that I think my organization could really do anything about. It created a lot of division and a lot of chaos, honestly deflected us from our core mission to serve domestic violence survivors. Your average client would be somebody who, who, who's been abused, right? Yes, yes. Who has suffered abuse and not just saying that they have, but that there's some sort of um, corroborating evidence that they have. And there's also an income limit. So if they make over a certain amount of money, which I'm not sure what it is right now, then they're not eligible for our services. So we are getting the most marginalized people coming through our doors. I've been in Philadelphia. It's unusually racially stratified in terms of rich versus poor. That That's definitely true. And it's definitely a problem that the city has. Given the public mood, there's just going to be problems in the current political environment when you're a white person serving a predominantly, mostly poor, black clientele. Even if your outfit hadn't brought in this diversity consultant and all this stuff happened, is there a way to navigate this that makes people feel comfortable? You know, I definitely think there is. I think it's meeting people where they are and trying to understand their circumstances and what they need and really listening to them. And I think anyone can do that regardless of skin color. 
one of the progressive mantras is like, it's bad to say you're colorblind. And the worst thing you can say is, oh, I don't see race because race doesn't exist. There is a grain of truth to that. There is. I've had similar conversations with my clients, especially if they felt that race played any part in a judge's decision or some other decision maker. So it is something that we navigate. And I think you can do that by learning what the issues are. And then, like I said, learning to listen to people and listen to what they're saying and what their true problems are. Are there problems often about race? I see it more as class, honestly. What I'm seeing, it's class, it's poverty, maybe a little bit, it's the current culture. I think that's really interesting because I think there's a lot of progressives and leftists who who want to put the focus maybe a little bit more back on class. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people say, oh, I don't talk about privilege. And I think privilege is a real thing. I mean, I have the privilege of, you know, growing up in a stable family and my parents had money. And And there are all different types of privilege. How does privilege manifest when it comes to abuse? Like for me, my presumption has always been that, well, if, if one of my friends, a woman, typically were abused in an abusive relationship... Because she's upper middle class, she would have a dozen different friends that she could stay in their guest room with her kid or she could go with parents. I'm just guessing that as you go lower in socioeconomic class, there's just fewer options. There are definitely fewer options, fewer places to stay, fewer people with resources that can offer them to the victim. However, as I saw in private practice before I joined Women Against Abuse, the abuse looks different in middle class and upper class families. And it often includes hoarding the resources, like the abuser controls the resources and uh, the victim doesn't have access to them and is often cut off from other family and friends. Now, obviously, that's a better position to be in than someone who has no money, no resources and no people to help. But it's still a problem. When it was announced that this sort of anti-racism campaign was going to go on at your organization. What was your first reaction? My first reaction was good. Believe it or not, I joined the anti-racism committee. That was very short-lived because I heard some really wild things that didn't comport with my views. And Well, okay, wait a sec. So tell me what you mean by wild things. So one thing was at the beginning of the meeting, the consultant that was brought in said, you know, she's just going to be honest with us, but she's having a hard time forgiving a whole race of people. And so she wasn't talking about like Uzbeks, right? No. Tajiks? No. And she said she feels bad that she has these feelings against white people, especially white women. <laughs> you were right there. <laughs> I was I was right there. I, I mean, it was on Zoom because it was during the pandemic. But part of me was like, am I really hearing this? And is this okay with for everyone else to hear? Putting aside politics and identity stuff... That's just very unprofessional, right? I would think, but maybe that's what anti-racism consultants do. Maybe that is professional for them. You haven't opened your mouth and she's presuming you're kind of a bitch, right? Yeah. That's an intersectional put down. It's like saying your whiteness and your femaleness intersect in me not liking you. That's exactly what she was saying. And and she presented it like, you know, I need help. I feel so bad that I feel this way. Well, but you're paying her. Yeah. How was this anti-racist consultant selected by your organization? That I don't know. I don't know how they selected her, but I do know that she now is at the Clinton Foundation. Oh, my God. These people fail upwards, right? They really do. And by the way, by these people, I don't mean like Uzbeks or Blacks <laughs> or Whites. I'm talking about people who are mean. Like, Well, tell me a little bit about the dynamic, like the Zoom call where she started off by 
saying she didn't like white women. How many people were on this call? And could you see people stiffen up on the video screen? Like, what was the reaction? No, I didn't see any reaction. She was beloved by the other people on the anti-racism team and by the other people who were followers, I'd say, of anti-racism. Very gregarious, outgoing, fun, funny. So she attracted people to her and people wanted to be in her orbit. So when she said, oh, I don't like white people and white women, I mean, I guess a generous interpretation of that would be like, she's being honest. She's she's not a hypocrite. You know, everyone has bigotries. Everybody has these thoughts. And she was leading by example by just saying, I'm going to put this out there. I'm going to create some discomfort. I'm going to create this zone where people are at liberty. Like, were you at liberty to say, hey, I'm glad you said that because, you know, I I really hate Hispanics? No, I was not. I was not even at liberty to say that. I don't like Black Lives Matter, even though I'm Jewish and Black Lives Matter is anti-Semitic. I've heard other stories like this where it's kind of an experience of solitary gaslighting, where there might be 50 people on the call and all 50 people feel uncomfortable, but no one wants to say it because they feel like people might gang up on them if they gave expression to that. During that meeting or in the meetings after, was there any kind of like private messaging going around saying like, um, hey, Susie, how do you feel about that whole white women thing? Or Not that I know of. How close was this to George Floyd? So actually, this was a few months later. This was around the time of Amy Coney Barrett being brought into the Supreme right. Court because she had, I remember her having things to say about that as well. Wide ranging opinions. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. But nobody said anything. And I know for a fact that there were other people there who agreed with her. There may have been people who disagreed because there was another time when the anti-racism committee was looking for people to lead the group. They wanted it to be, in their words, a black or brown person. And if it was a black or brown person and they did it in conjunction with a white person because it was a lot of work, only the black or brown person would get paid extra to have that leadership role because they didn't know if they would have enough money to pay both. But because of the emotional labor involved, the black or brown person should get that money. Now, someone else who was on the call who happened to be a black lady was like, no, I don't think that's right. If I do it, I'm not going to take the money. Like, I'll split it with whoever. But why should that be based on race? So this is a black woman who said that? Yes. Oh, good for her. That's what I thought. Yes. But at the time, I was still being quiet. I was still trying to figure out what was going on. And now a message on behalf of another podcast called The Commercial Break. Now, if you're looking for super serious commentary on, I don't know, the ennui of the digital age, The Commercial Break is absolutely not for you. This is a funny podcast hosted by two friends, Brian and Chrissy are their names, who get in the studio three times a week and make each other laugh. Now, as you know, I like to try my hand at humor every now and again on this podcast, but Brian and Chrissy are on another level. They're pros. And whether they're giving terrible life advice to listeners or riffing on the surreal nonsense they find on the internet, it'll provide a nice, funny break from, you know, all of that ennui of the digital age stuff we talk about here at Quillette. The commercial break is consistently ranked in Apple's top 100 comedy podcasts, and has new episodes posted every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on all major podcast platforms. Full episodes and daily clips are also available on the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash thecommercialbreak, or you can visit tcbpodcast.com. That's tcbpodcast.com. 
So go ahead and take a listen, but please remember that some episodes do contain spicy language and topics meant for adults, which I mention just in case the kids are listening when you tune into your podcasts. I don't like to use the term emotional labor unironically, but there is kind of more emotional labor in it for a black person because if you're a black person and you have reservations about this stuff, as this person did and had the guts to say it and good for her, people might say, hey, you're a sellout. You're betraying the cause. I mean, this woman took a risk by by sticking to her principles and calling it out. She definitely took a risk, but she was also saying, The Civil Rights Act prevents us from paying people differently based on skin color. All right. So you've had the Zoom call. You know, you're in your affinity group. Tell me how this anti-racist consultation proceeded. Did it proceed to an endpoint where there was a report given or maybe, you know, a town hall meeting where the results were presented? Not yet. Not yet. So the next, I'd say, big incident that happened for me was when a friend of mine, another Jewish employee, shared an article about anti-Semitism within the critical social justice movement. And at the time, Philadelphia had had two incidents of anti-Semitism that kind of became infamous. One of them was a football player, an Eagles player who posted something online that was anti-Semitic. And the second thing was the president of the local NAACP chapter had done the same. So there was a bit of a brouhaha about those things. And my colleague shared the article with the legal center and and said, you know, she just wanted to share this. This is in the context of tons of anti-racism articles being shared amongst the employees in the legal center and throughout the agency. I'd say daily there were at least three articles on racism, anti-racism that were like, white people, your silence is violence. White people, shut up and let a black or brown person take the stand. Lots of things about white supremacy, lots of things about white privilege. So in this context, she shared the article about anti-Semitism within the movement. And I chimed in and said, this is great. I would love it if Women Against Abuse would consider this And I brought up that I had asked for an anti-Semitism article to be included within our anti-racism resources, and that that idea was shot down. Well, you would have thought (laughs) that I just went out there and said the most racist thing in the world because I was immediately attacked by a barrage of my colleagues in email responses, accusing me of furthering white supremacism taking the spotlight away from black and brown people. Wait, wait a sec. Just so just to be clear, you didn't say, "Hey, let's include materials about how white people have it tough too." You were specifically saying we should educate people about anti-Semitism, right? Yes. But as the responses showed, Jews can hide behind their white skin, and that's what someone told me. You can hide behind your shield of whiteness. Whereas Black people can't do that. I think it's ridiculous that the materials you presented weren't taken seriously for educational purposes and that people jumped on you. But it is kind of true that the whole anti-Semitism thing does fit awkwardly within the race-obsessed American discussion about bigotry. It's true. Jews don't fit in. And I also made this point white or black is irrelevant to Jews and Judaism. It's just, it's not relevant. There was an article in Tablet from 2016, and it's just fresh in my mind. 
The author is John Paul Pagano. I'm just going to read you a snippet. Anti-Semitism doesn't work like most forms of racism, which denigrate their victims as inferior. Anti-Semitism is special in that it often perceives its target, Jews, as having too much privilege and assails them for it. Like in Philadelphia, as, as in Toronto, uh, where I live, the Jewish community statistically is a privileged community. Was it that aspect that your colleagues were getting at when they criticized you? They were criticizing me mainly for bringing it up at all. I'm sure some of it was that aspect. The context, so this Philadelphia Eagles player, by the way, we're talking about American football. We're not talking about soccer. I just say that because a lot of our listeners are in UK and Europe and South Asia and other soccer, as I call it, soccer-obsessed places. You're talking about American football. This is a guy from the NFL, Philadelphia Eagles, and it's interesting because as we're talking here, I'm surfing the web trying to find out what he actually said. Deshaun Jackson. Deshaun Jackson. But it's weird, like these articles, they say he said an anti-Semitic thing, but the journalists don't want to repeat it. So I don't even know what he said. What did he say? Uh, he said, said the quote was attributed to Hitler. So that, <laughs> that doesn't sound good. Something about Something about if you want to know who has power, know who you're allowed to criticize. And I'm paraphrasing. And then, yes, he attributed it to Hitler. And he ended up doing teshuva and talking to a rabbi, and it was all fine. But my point with that is we were being bombarded with anti-racism, the ideology. We were being asked to sign on to a very specific ideology that I believe has anti-Semitic elements to it. And I wanted that to be part of the discussion because you are saying that I need to know this stuff and be this way to be able to serve my clients well. Part of this is anti-Semitic and I'm Jewish. So what do you say about that? Do you actually think that that some of the pedagogical material that was part of the anti-racism training, it raised alarm bells as far as Jewish stuff goes? Um, I think in general it does. I think Black Lives Matter has spoken out a lot during the protests and, and some of the protests that became riots and some became actually violent. Jewish communities in certain areas were definitely vandalized. In Los Angeles, it happened. In Chicago, I think maybe in Florida even, there were Jewish communities that were vandalized. So that is part of the movement, not the whole thing, but it's it's a strain of it. So I, I wanted that to be part of the discussion. Some of these stories you hear, it actually very much tests existing friendships and collegialities. So even though these consultancies, they, they're supposed to bring people together, they kind of tear people apart. In this whole process, were your friendships within the organization strained? Yes, very much so. Like these people who are attacking you for bringing up the Jewish angle, were some of those people that you'd formerly had lunch with and stuff? Yes. Did you talk to them and say, hey, look, you know me, why are you taking out the knives? After that, no. I mean, some of some of what was said was, in my opinion, just it, it hit too hard. And publicly piling on somebody like that, I, I, I don't feel that those friendships were there after that. And that was hard. That was very hard because I felt like I had like pretty warm relationships with most of them before that. Did they apologize afterward? No. And, and I had people come up to me and say, oh, you were so brave for doing that. Because at another point, I had to defend all of this alone to the legal center in another Zoom meeting. And I did. I defended my position. How did that meeting come about? That meeting was called by the DEI consultant because in her language, there was a breach of trust. And she started up the meeting by asking everyone what was the breach of trust. And everyone said, 
oh, because an article about anti-Semitism was shared when we are all supposed to be talking about anti-racism. And I was the only person who said no. <laughs> Wait a sec, but were you the one who shared that article? It was a colleague who did. She ended up apologizing and I didn't. And and I apologized for hurting people's feelings because it wasn't what I wanted to do. I was shocked and appalled by the response. And it was really... But, but do you think you actually did hurt other people's no. feelings? Or do you think it was a political thing where they were weaponizing their feelings to get Karen to shut up. I think they were weaponizing their feelings. But at the time, when I'm sitting there and I'm getting all these email notifications, I wondered, had I done something wrong? Humans are social creatures, especially people in your organization, because an organization is, among other things, a tribe. And when they're telling people, you're hurting the tribe, you're hurting us, that's got to cause sleepless nights and anxiety. It did. You know? It definitely did. And I'm much better now. I've developed a thicker skin. But at the time, it was a bit bewildering. Did you consider quitting? No. You're still at this organization. I am still there. And honestly, I love the job. I love the work. I don't love all of that shoving an ideology down people's throats and the racial stereotyping and discrimination. That part was horrible. But the actual work I love and I'd like to continue doing it. I don't know if that's going to be possible, but I will stay there as long as I can. It's been two years, it sounds like, since this consultant was brought on. Are, are they still there? Uh, the consultant has not been doing any more meetings. She is still there. There's a there's an anti-racism audit that's being done by another group, but she is assisting them with that. And this group is doing the audit on the basis of where does white supremacy manifest in your organization? Not does it manifest in your organization, but where? But to me, this is where it seems like a grift. I'm yet to hear a story of an anti-racism auditor who says, yeah, well, I didn't find any racism. Like, if you look for racism, it's kind of like looking for anxiety or looking for problems. You're going to find it, right. right? It's not technically a grift. It's not criminal. I mean, your organization is paying this person over the table, but it sure feels like It, it feels like that to me, too. And what gets me even more is when I see our clients and I see their needs, how could we have used that money in a different way to help them? And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp Online Therapy. So if you're a longtime Quillette podcast listener, you'll know that I don't read a lot of AM radio style ads on this show for like diet supplements or weight loss gimmicks. And it's worth asking why most people don't put as much care or concern into protecting their minds as slimming their waistlines or getting whiter teeth and shinier hair. Now, there are plenty of ways to support a healthy brain, like learning a new language or getting exercise and meditation. But when going it alone can seem too difficult, there's also BetterHelp, online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions, so you can choose whether or not you want to see anyone on camera during your therapy. BetterHelp has been advertising with Quillette for several years now, and so I've heard from some of our listeners who've benefited from it. They like the service, and they like the price, which is much more affordable than traditional in-person therapy. Quillette listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp by going to betterhelp.com slash Quillette. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. And now back to our Quillette podcast. I want to read to you something. I just happened to be reading this great article in the New York Review of Books. It's a history of American socialism. 
It's called Socialists on the Knife Edge by Harry Kunzru. He talks about the 1960s. In the 1960s, the so-called New Left emerged, quote, bristling with the idealism of privileged youth, end quote. He's quoting Gary Dorian, who wrote a, a new book about the subject. Sometimes I hear these stories and the concerns that I hear progressives talking about microaggressions, pronouns, representation in the media. I'm not saying these aren't real issues, but it, it must sound very different from the concerns that your clients are bringing to you. Like you have an unusual position in that you get on a Zoom call with, with an anti-racism consultant, and I'm sure some of the stuff is very arcane, and maybe only a very privileged person can care about it. But then maybe you go into a meeting with a client, and they're talking about like, I don't know where I'm going to live tonight and stuff like that. They're talking about that. They're talking about having to send their kids back to an abuser because the court believes that, oh, well, he just abused you, not the kids. They're talking about not having enough money to buy school uniforms or to buy food. So yes, these, these concerns are very far removed from what I've seen of my clients' concerns. Housing, housing is the number one issue for domestic violence survivors and I kept thinking, how many people could we have housed with the money that we're spending on these consultants that, frankly, are not doing our organization any good? Has this experience given you any ideas for like what kind of questions or concerns an organization should entertain before they hire a diversity consultant? Well, I think you want to hire someone who is more humanistic and someone who is going to bring people together rather than divide. Being identitarian doesn't work because then you're just creating little tribes in your organization. You know how like schools of therapy, there's like Jungian and Freudian and mm -hmm. this and that. Are there... Schools of anti-racism, schools of DEI? Yeah. Like, you know, can I go to someone's website and are there sort of little badges that basically say to me, don't worry, I'm not some guy who's read too much candy and I'm going to come in and make all the white people sit in the corner and talk about their shame. Because every profession does have its emerging schools of thought. Has this profession gone in that direction? I haven't heard of that, but that's an excellent idea. Maybe it's something you can start. <laughs> I don't I, <laughs> because <laughs> I don't have the right positionalities for that. I'm <laughs> yeah. And there are people who do diversity work that is good. Like Jason Littlefield and Eric Smith, they have empowered ed pathways and that's more for education. It's excellent. It's humanistic. It's about bringing people together, not dividing people. Irshad Manji has moral courage yeah. and Sheena Mason, theory of racelessness. And, and her theory is don't focus on skin color so much. That is not the thing. That is not the thing that really divides us. And it's not the thing that's going to bring us together. Nicole Levitt, thank you so much for joining the Quillette Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.